Hey, hey, OG. How are you guys today? Good. I am like super surprised to actually be up here and to be able to share with you today. Um, one, I had no idea that Chris knew that I was back in the States when I got this invitation. Um, and I hadn't seen him. I hadn't talked to him. I just got a random email. It's like, hey, can you preach in November for us? And then uh, secondly, um, I, I hadn't had a chance to really settle back in with my wife here into life at OG. We've been so busy with transition and where are we going to be next and how are we going to do things and where are we going to work and everything else. We just haven't been as regular as we were a couple of years ago. And, and the third thing is, I don't know that I have enough plaid in my wardrobe <laughs> to be able to stand up here. I didn't, I didn't think that I qualified I mean, Chris has so much plaid that I just like, I, I can't do that. I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm right for the job. So um, I know that, you know, Erica gave a little introduction, and just so you're not wondering who I am for the next two hours while I'm preaching, and, sorry, I know, just an hour, I promise. Um, I grew up on a small farm in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. My wife is a Detroit girl. We met and married while we were students at a small college in Indiana. And then we spent 17 years in the deep south, Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia, ministering full-time in Christian ministries. And then we took our young family to Egypt in 2012. And we ministered there in the Middle East and in Europe, walking alongside of churches and nonprofits. And then all of a sudden, that ended. And we found ourselves back in the States, staying with family, wondering what was next for us. And we came into OG, and OG was beginning a series called The Next 20. And that was the questions that we were asking, and it just resonated with us, like, yeah, what is the next 20 hold for us, and where are we going to be? And we were a part of this amazing small group that had Gina and Carl leading it, and Mike was in it, and Chris was in it, and Abby, and Annie, and Lou, and Ed, and Brenda, and Dale. And it was just this great connection that we felt with one another, and, and just a fantastic small group. And OG became a part of, of us. And uh, so to be a part now, to share with you a little bit of what Pastor Chris has been talking about, about the importance and the value of grief and mourning and how we process those emotions is just a really unique uh, opportunity and joy for me because I've been working through those things in my own life. Like Erica said, my dad died a couple of years ago as well, and I'm going to talk about that. But this is a really important time to talk about those things. Pastor Chris has led us on this amazing five to six weeks talking about mourning and grief and how universal these stages of grief are. The denial, the anger, the bargaining, the uh, uh, depression, and the acceptance. And not just how universal those are, because we typically think about that when we lose somebody, when we're mourning the death and the loss of someone special within our lives. But they're universal in the fact that they also show up in our lives when we experience heartache in any other different way. Anything that else that we have loved or put our hope in or relied on, when we lose that, we go through that mourning, we go through that grief, we go through those same processes, those same stages, those same emotions in those ways as well. It could be a divorce, it could be the betrayal of a friend, it could be a loss of a job, a loss of a home, a loss of community, the loss of a dream. 
It could be your sports team losing in the big game. All of those things lead us to mourn and to experience all kinds of struggle and hurt and heartache within ourselves. We have those emotions that go through. And while those things are universal, they're also very, very unique. Just because we all experience anger or bargaining or depression or, or shock or, or acceptance at different ways, we experience them uniquely. From one loss to another, we experience them differently. We experience them, them differently from one another. It's like the weather in Michigan, okay? Just because we know that we have these seasons, in Michigan, you get the experience of having them one day after another. And randomly, <laughs> too, right? It can snow on Saturday and be sunny on Sunday, and then it can be rainy on Monday, and then Tuesday it's cloudy, and then back again, you know? And it's just all over the place, and it makes no sense. But that's how the stages of grief and mourning are and how they operate within us and how we travel through them. It's like being in a building that you don't want to be in and you get on an elevator and it just drops you on a whole nother stage, a whole nother place. And then you got to wrestle through anger in that level for a little while and you get on another elevator and it drops you into depression. And then you go on to another place and you get another elevator and all of a sudden you're into denial and shock again. And it just moves you suddenly up and down through that. And the time that it takes is also very different. One of the things that I find to be a perk in my current job right now is that when I have a moment, when I have free time, I get to make calls to clients to wish them a happy birthday. And this week I was making a call to a lady, I'll call her Dot, it wasn't her actual name, but I was like, Dot, we see on our calendar that it's your birthday, and I just wanted to call on behalf of the company to be able to say happy birthday to you and that we're thinking about you. And she said, oh, thank you for that, but to be honest, I'm, I'm feeling really down today. And I was like, why is that? Why are you feeling down? And she said, because I'm just really missing my husband today. And you ever want to just reach through a phone and and hug somebody and kind of be with them. It was one of those moments. And that's what I want to talk to us about today because as we transition out of this series of understanding the importance and the value of grief and as we start looking and focusing full time on the holidays, as Erica said, this is such a, an important time to think about looking into how do we mourn with others. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 15, gives a very simple statement, but it's super challenging. He says in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, but mourn with those who mourn. Oh, gee, if, if we're going to be mature in our faith and our understanding of mourning, we also have to be mature in understanding how do we walk alongside of others when they're mourning. Not just to, to do what we've done the last several weeks and understand the importance and the value of grieving and mourning within our own lives, but how do we mourn well with others and to experience and understand where they're at? How do we come alongside of them? And so what I want to do in the next few moments is just to be able to share some of the lessons that I've learned, not just in, in ministry, but in life. Uh, how do we mourn well with others? And then the first thing that comes to mind is that words fail. Words just absolutely fail. This week we got news that 
dear friends of ours lost a son tragically. And, and my wife went to talk to our supervisor and say, I might need some time to go be with them uh, during the season that they're experiencing. And, and, and my, co- my supervisor, I overheard her say, you know, that's super tough. I don't know what to say. He says, that's always so hard. I don't know what we need to, to say in moments like that. And I overheard her and I said, you know what? It's not what we say in moments like that. It's just the process of being with them in moments like that. I don't know why it is, especially people of faith feel like we've got to be able to explain every loss, that we've got to be able to provide meaning in some trite little bumper sticker way of, you know, oh, they're in a better place, or at least they're not suffering now, or God has a plan, or something like that. But words fail in moments like that. The people who are suffering, people who are mourning, people who are grieving, they definitely don't need the sermon, but they definitely don't need us trying to figure out how to speak, you know, very simply what they're experiencing. And I know that that comes from a place of well-intentioned, but words fail. They need us to walk alongside them. They need us to be with them in that emptiness and that awkwardness and that ache and not knowing what to say and not knowing how to explain it. They need to know that we resonate with them in those moments as best as we possibly can. And then when we're with them, when we've been walking with them, little by little, words can offer some comfort. Words can offer some help as they know that you are there, as they know that you care, as they know that you're with them and that you're going to be present with them in that ache, that's when words make a difference. But only little by little and after we've walked with them and been with them a little bit. Another thing that I want to be able to say to us is we're going to try to practice how we mourn with others is that the price of mourning is always greater later. The price of mourning is always greater later. We are learning through medical science that these stages, these states of emotions that individuals go through in mourning are not just simply emotions, but they're very tightly connected to body chemistry, to your physical body, to your mental processing, and even to your spiritual processing and well-being. And if you want more on that, there's a great book that's out there. It's called The Body Keeps Score. And within our practice, especially within the West, we like to be able to try to move on quickly from mourning or to try to even encourage people to get back out there and to get back to life and get back to living. You can't be dwelling on this. When we were in Egypt, if a woman lost a husband or lost a child, their wardrobe would change. They would completely wear black, not just for the time of of a week or anything like that, at least a year. They would only wear black out in public as a, a way of acknowledging that they lost someone, something important to them. And they would mourn and everybody would recognize that this is somebody who has lost and to give space and to be able to allow them to mourn. But within the West, we want to just kind of push people on and we're like, just get over it and, and get back to it. You can't keep mourning this loss. But we need time to mourn because the body keeps score. Long before I ever heard it about this book, I found this out to be true. My dad was a Vietnam veteran, and throughout my life, I never heard very much about Vietnam. 
though my interest was high in military and all kinds of different history, he never talked about it very much. I never saw very many pictures. I never heard any stories. These were things that my dad kept suppressed. He kept himself so busy. He was an entrepreneurial guy. He had a full-time job that was 45 minutes away. We had a small farm, and he started and operated seven different businesses while I was a, a child, all before age 12. He was keeping himself so busy just so that he wouldn't have to deal and cope with so much of what he had experienced, so much trauma, so much hurt, so much mourning and sadness within his life. But as his life went on, he kind of felt and knew that he had to start dealing with that. When I was away at college, my grandfather, who was a World War II bomber pilot, was um, diagnosed with leukemia. And my, my dad tried to get to him as often as he could. I think always intending to want to talk about those experiences of war and what he had done and what he had been a part of with my grandfather, but he kept putting it off to the next trip, to the next trip. And then my grandfather's leukemia went into remission. And then my dad just kind of felt like, okay, it'll be all right. We'll have time to talk about it later. And then my grandfather died of an, in an accident. The week that my grandfather died, my dad completely changed. Decades of stress and trauma and mourning uncorked, just exploded within his life. Physically, he could not keep his body still. He couldn't keep his hands still. He couldn't keep his head still sometimes. Emotions were constantly pouring in and out of him, highs and lows. His legs, the bones in his legs, literally bowed inward, and he had to get braces to be able to keep himself straight, to be able to walk and to be able to move. I had to start taking him to VA psych centers and leaving him so that he could start talking about things that he had never, ever talked about with anyone because the body keeps score and the price of mourning and grief is always greater later. We have to recognize when somebody is mourning and to be able to not only give them space but to walk alongside of them to be able to say, it's okay to mourn this right now. It's okay to walk through this. To validate the need to be able to take the time to really process that well. Because we can't just keep suppressing those things and allowing those things to build up in us because that price will be greater later. Words fail. The price is greater later. And if we're going to mourn well with others, we also have to learn to mourn well ourselves. A couple years ago when my dad was uh, sick and we were trying to figure out what was going on in our life and trying to figure out what was next for us. My mom called me and said, you need to come down. I don't know that dad's going to pull out of this. And so I went down and I spent some time with him in the hospital. I spent about a week with him and he had all kinds of questions about what was happening with us while he was definitely in a, a lot of pain and a lot of struggle. And I didn't want to get into it. I was like, dad, just just focus on getting better, and, and uh, I, I didn't understand at that moment that 
Even at the end of dad's life, he just wanted to be included in my life. And I was missing that. I wasn't making that connection. And um, during that time, he said, you know, if I die, I need you to be willing to preach my funeral. I'm like, Dad, we don't need to talk about that. I mean, one day, sure, I'll do that, but I don't need to do that now. I don't need to talk about that now. I don't want to talk about those arrangements. And he's like, yeah, we need to talk about it. And over the few days, we did talk about it a little bit, but we never got into a lot of other different things, partly because in the, in the years that we spent taking his grandchildren off to Egypt, we stopped seeing eye to eye on a lot of different things, some of what we were doing, he felt differently about, and, and we had a lot of different disagreements, and, and so it was really hard to have some really meaningful conversations with my dad. And I don't know why, but I just didn't feel like I could stay. I didn't th- one, I didn't feel like he was, he was going to stay there in the hospital. I thought that all of those different competing health needs, they were going to figure it out like they had been doing over the last couple of decades since his dad died. They would figure it out, and he would go home. And this was just the latest chapter in that. But he didn't go home. And about a week after I left, I got a message from my brother that my dad was gone. And so we went down, all of us, for the funeral. And his funeral was on my birthday. And the hardest time, I've spent my entire life preaching and teaching and sharing with groups of all sizes for all kinds of different things. I've walked through so many different funerals with so many different families. But to try to prepare a message about my dad on that day was so hard. And I didn't want to be standing at a podium next to him when I had been away from him for so long. And I didn't know what to say. But I knew what I needed to do. I just needed to be near my dad. So rather than stand behind the podium, I just stood at the casket and held his hands and shared with everybody a couple of things that Dad passed on to me. But I didn't feel like I was mourning well. It was about a year later, I was reading this book by this researcher and author named Sherry Turkle. Sherry writes about how in the digital age, especially with all our devices, we're losing the ability to communicate with one another. We're losing the ability to have good conversation. We're losing the ability to listen well. We're losing the ability to interact well. And in her book, Alone Together, she talks about how she's still learning herself, how she needs to improve in the conversations that she needs to have. And she's a Jewish woman. She says that on the Day of Atonement every year, Yom Kippur, they have a service for remembering the dead called Yiskor. And while she was at the synagogue that day, her rabbi really surprised her because the sermon that he gave was this idea that we, the living, need to be able to speak to the dead. And she was really taken back by that as somebody who studies communication. Why do we need to communicate with the dead? And the the rabbi said, it's not a morbid thing to do. It's an important thing to do. And he said, there are four things that we need to say, four conversations that we need to be able to have. I'm sorry. Thank you. I forgive you. I love you. I'm sorry. 
Thank you. I forgive you. I love you. And as I read this story about how it was really challenging her, all I could think about was, I need to have this conversation with Dad. So I took some time. And any time I find myself on one of those elevator drops and all of a sudden I'm in anger or denial or, or depression over anyone that I've lost or anything that I've lost, I try to recall one of these conversations and to try to have it, to try to, to be able to say, I'm sorry, thank you, I forgive you, I love you. And as I was preparing this message for today, I started thinking, you know, why do we wait for mourning to have those conversations? Maybe a part of mourning well is to prepare to mourn well, to start having these conversations with the people who matter, the people we love, the people that would wreck us if they were gone. Why don't we start saying some of these things now? And I know that as we come into the holidays and as we come into this week of Thanksgiving, our, our attention's going to be on preparing a meal or cleaning up a meal or the continued holiday dominance of the Detroit Lions. I, I, know that, <laughs> I know that we're going to be distracted by a lot of other different things. But while we're near somebody that we love, or while we're going to give them that phone call on the holidays because we can't be together, why not start some of these conversations? Because I can tell you, and this is true for Erica, is true for me, I wish I had more of those conversations with my dad before rather than after. So why do we put it off? Why do we wait? One of the amazing things of the Christian faith is that our Savior taught us not only the value and importance and the centrality of loss and new life, but he left us with enduring symbols of the broken body and the lifeblood. And as we take communion today, it's an opportunity for us not only to think about what he has given in his death and in his resurrection, but also for us to think about our own mortality and in the mortality of those around us. What's important? What matters? How are we demonstrating that? How might the lessons of faith in Christ teach me to value life, to give life, to give love, and to be born again into new life and new states of being? How can we put off or stop putting off those conversations and enter into new ways of being with one another because we had 
those conversations, to let the old ways die so that the new ways can come in. Communion is an opportunity for us not to just reflect on what God has done for us, but how we might also do for one another to be broken for the sake of others, to give new life, new relationship, 